Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's what we talk about on this podcast. The games that my guests and I either play and enjoy or events that we've gone to and uh, we're reporting back on what's happened, or where we get to speak to some of the creators of those games, uh, and we get to talk about how they come into being. Now, today is an incredibly special day for me uh, for a lot of reasons, and I it, oh, I it is one of my favorite guests. But before we get to the big man himself, the big kahuna, we are going to take one step to the right, and we are going to look at the larger gaming industry. And there has been an unbelievable amount of talk recently about Warhammer 40K, 9th edition. Now, we don't usually talk about Warhammer games, uh, many games, workshop games on this podcast. And I would like to be clear, I am not anti-Games Workshop. I have never been anti-Games Workshop. I tend to talk about the things that I'm playing and I'm uh, into at the time. And without Games Workshop, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Uh, Games Workshop hired me. Um, I learned to talk probably as much and uh, as loudly as I do now because I worked for Games Workshop for as long as I did. Um, and what got me into Games Workshop in the very first place was a game called Warhammer 40,000. Now, did it start my gaming journey? No. I started with games like Battletech, Car Wars, Marvel, superheroes, role-playing, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, Ogre. Then The list goes on and on. I played a ton of games. But it wasn't till I cracked Rogue Trader and I read the description of what a bolter does that I became truly hooked by gaming. I mean, I was, I was pretty obsessed before that. But with just reading that little paragraph, my life literally changed to the point where I now live in Australia and I've met my wife and everything that is good and important in my life, in a, to a large degree, is responsible. Uh, is, Games Workshop is largely responsible for that, that journey, so to speak. Now, there's been a lot of discussion of the upcoming 9th edition Warhammer 40,000 today. And it would be a, a responsible podcast topic if I was a sensible guest to say, or host to say, let's get someone on and talk about that new edition. Let's get on there and, you know, let's talk about all the hype. Let's get on that hype train and woohoo. But we're going to go a slightly different direction. We're going to go the other way. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And we are going to talk to the man whose name is on the binding of Warhammer 40,000 First Edition, Rogue Trader, not the board game, the book, the game in 1987 that started it all. The man, the myth, the legend, Rick Priestley. Welcome back to Cast Dice. Hi, Brad. That was, uh, 
I, I, I can't tell you anything about the ninth edition of Warhammer 40,000, I'm afraid, but another time, maybe. Oh, I, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about Warhammer 40,000, ninth edition, and I'm okay with that. Um, I, we, so I've had requests to talk about old, old Hammer, I guess is what some people call it, for a long time, because I have a lot of people who know, who listen to this show, who know how much Warhammer 40,000 meant to me and how much it has shaped me as a gamer and as a person and everything. And I don't say that lightly. And so I've had a lot of requests over the years to talk about second edition Warhammer, to talk about Rogue Trader, to talk about my favorite edition of Warhammer 40,000 and to critique them because I played them up through sixth. But I, I thought, you know, when I got another one of those requests, who better to have on than the man who's, as I said, whose name is on the binding? Um, now, we, we have talked off air, and it does take uh, a village to create something as uh, you know, long-lasting and as epic as Warhammer 40,000. But you are largely responsible for a large chunk of that. Um, Rick, I know that we've talked on other podcasts about your history with gaming and sort of how you got started with Games Workshop. But how did your name end up on the binding of what is probably the most popular game in gaming history? Um, yeah, uh, well, well, I wrote, uh, well, I wrote, I wrote all the text, so that's, um, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, uh, that was, that was my book. But when, when I first joined Games Workshop, I, I actually had a game uh, that I. Uh, uh, that, that I'd, I'd developed and um, designed the models for uh, mm -hmm. myself, called, uh, which was called Rogue Trader, and it was actually a spaceship combat role-playing game. Oh, nice! Uh, it was uh, something which um, I, I just happened to sort of be inspired by the concept, and mm -hmm. uh, so I suppose it a little bit like Traveller, but it was um, uh, it, it was very based on spaceships, and I actually made a range of spaceships that uh, I did sell to Citadel at the time. Um, and when I joined Games Workshop officially, one of the understood things was that at some point uh, Citadel would produce that game. Well, they never did, largely because events overtook us. But um, the name Rogue Trader had already been talked about. And in fact, there's an advert in one of the early compendiums, I think, for that spaceship game. Yes. And Yeah, um, and because there was an advert for it, uh, there was a, a there was an eternal sort of anticipation mm -hmm. for Rogue Trader. So when we when we eventually uh, got to uh, work on the um, the game that became Rogue Trader, I mean, I, really it was a bit of a personal project. In, in fact, it was a commissioned out of house. Uh, I I uh, wrote the, uh, the that game, all the text for that game, and developed that game entirely in my own time, as we all did at the time. Mm -hmm. It's worth bearing in mind that. Um, it probably wasn't until about the time this was published, uh, 1987, that we actually started to employ, I'd say, proper games designers and developers, people whose job was to develop and design games in-house. Mm -hmm. Up until that point, those of us who had been designing games, basically, basically me, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically me, had, had been doing it out of house. The, the job we had was putting things together so mm -hmm. magazines uh catalogs uh and uh, and games you know you, you know our job was production rather than games design 
Yeah. The concept of paying someone to do games design was way, it just wasn't there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, which is why when the uh, uh, game was originally published, um, I actually got a small royalty on it. Uh, which I, I didn't subsequently, so uh, unfortunately I'd be a very, very rich man today. I was going to say, and uh, yeah. your, your Ferrari collection is over there, yeah. It certainly would be, but uh, I'm sadly not. <laughs> it didn't work out like that. Uh, uh, but um, uh, uh, so, so so really that Warhammer 40,000 game, Rogue Trader, um, it, it was it was kind of born of the fact that I always anticipated doing that original game. Mm -hmm. But over time, that original game morphed into our fantasy version of Warhammer because we'd started to incorporate um, technological elements into Warhammer. And we did that very early on. I, I, if any, if any of uh, you remember first edition Warhammer, even second edition Warhammer, there was an element of science fiction in it. And, and we published articles in the journals and um, the, the original Citadel journals and the original Citadel compendiums. Uh, we published articles in those which had um, uh, rules for science fiction weapons and uh, uh, ancient lost artifacts that were the equivalent thereof. Um, so the concept of, of, of a science fiction Warhammer was something which I kind of just brought into uh, Citadel. Now, at the time, I had a great enthusiasm for it, and it was one of those things where Every time we had a project to do, I'd go, oh, can I do Road Trader? Can I do Road Trader? And Brian Ansell would always say, um, no, we want you to do this other thing. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, it's fantasy something or other. Yeah. We want you to do this other thing. Can you do this other thing first? Yeah, one day, but can you do this other thing? And uh, the reason was that there was a, uh, a perception at the time that science fiction didn't sell. Uh, and that was almost a mantra. I mean, it was one of Brian's mantras, in fact. Yeah. Science fiction does not sell. And he had a go at it himself over the years with various things, including for tabletop games. Um, as had I, I had already published a science fiction game with Richard Halliwell called Combat 3000. Mm -hmm. And Brian had already published a game called Laserburn. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. Which, which um, he designed a range of miniatures for, for tabletop games. So, um, and, and they'd done all right, but I don't think they'd been particularly successful. Uh, and, and science fiction games, I, I think I think TSR did a science fiction role-playing game. I can't remember what it was called off the top of my head. Spelljammer. Oh, no, before Spelljammer. Before that. That was D&D. &D. Um, I'm sorry, Star Frontiers. Star Frontiers, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. And that and that didn't do very well. Um, you yeah. know, there was a, a, a Metamorphosis Alpha was an early kind of science And that was all right, but it was very much of a second division sort of thing mm -hmm. fantasy was very very hot science fiction wasn't um so the assumption was science fiction didn't sell and that was one reason why you know there was no real enthusiasm to do um my game uh and it's particularly um uh true when it came to miniatures and, and the other truism was that no one buys aliens it says so, so science fiction doesn't sell mm -hmm. and nobody buys aliens you know was the aphorism, mm -hmm. uh, and this would be repeated, repeat uh, uh, now uh, every so often every time the subject came up. But eventually, what happened was, um, Games Workshop was expanding, and we acquired uh, a whole raft of people from TSR. And this includes—I'm sorry if I've missed anyone out. 
It includes Jim Bambra, um, Graham Davis by association. I don't think he actually worked for them, but he did work for them mm-hmm. and he came to work for us. Um, Mike Brunton, uh, Phil Gallagher are the four games designers that spring to mind immediately. And we also acquired a, um, a board games designer called Stephen Hand, I think. Mm-hmm. Richard Halliwell came over for a spell of work. Uh, uh, Richard Halliwell was one of these people who worked on and off. He, he'd worked for a year and then disappear for a year on a world trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did that re- cyclically throughout his entire career, really. But he was there at the time. Um, and uh, Jervis Johnson joined us from um, sales. Um, he designed Blood Bowl. So all of a sudden, instead of having one person, essentially he was a games designer, and a bit of a staff around him. We had quite a big staff. Mm-hmm. And my role, um, therefore, kind of changed. And, and instead of being sort of jack of all trades, theoretically studio manager in the very early days, but, you know, there was only me, Tony Ackland and uh, John Blanche. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if I could tell either of them what to do with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> John Blanche has a venerable reputation. Um, I, I don't know about the other gentlemen's. Oh, uh, 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 Tony Ackland, uh, Tony, well, Tony and I got on really quite well. I mean, we still do to this day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were the first two um, uh, members of the studio. In fact, me and Tony were the studio for quite a while. And then John joined us uh, later. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you look at the early Warhammer, a lot of the humor and a lot of the the, the art style in it in particular comes from Tony, but the, a lot of the humor is me and me and Tony bantering stuff in the office. You know, mm-hmm. it, it has, it has that sort of the terrible puns, for example, we'd compete. Um, and I'm so glad you did. That was one of my favorite uh, yeah, it was things. Quite, it was quite good fun. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so what had happened by the time I, uh, let's say 1986 was that we'd acquired this quite large staff. Yeah. So, uh, I, 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 in my memory is vaguely me, me saying, oh, can I really, can I get, I'd really like to do Rogue Trader. And uh, and Brian sort of, because Brian Ansell would have been in charge of the, uh, he wasn't the theory, the studio manager, but he was in charge of the whole business. It was his business, really. Yeah. Um, so I got, I got kind of like tentative permission to spend time doing Rogue Trader on the basis that it would actually be published mm-hmm. simply because there was now so many other people to do things that they really wanted to do <laughs> like all the role-playing games all the board games all the uh, there were a whole series of games for uh, that we were trying to do for uh, the uh, uh, book trade you know all of a sudden there were a lot of things happening and because there were a lot of things happening the enthusiasm for um uh, it wasn't clear what was going to be successful at that time. Remember, we we so we got a deal with West End, I think, doing uh, republishing their stuff. Um, we'd got a deal with Chaosium republishing their stuff. So I think there was a sense at the top of the business. I mean, Brian Ansell really and uh, Keith Pinfold, his business partner, mm-hmm. that Games Workshop was going to expand because we were going to be doing Chaosium games and all these role-playing games and so on and so forth. It wasn't, it wasn't so blindingly obvious as it might be nowadays that actually the money wasn't in that, but in the toy soldiers and in the war games. Yeah. So I got to do Rogue Trader not because it was seen as an important thing, but because it was seen as a oh god, Rick, let's get, let's just let Rick do this thing and then then he'll shut up about it. <laughs> oh, history so, just oh the the irony yeah. 
the irony is, so, is wonderful. So the reason I got to do it, and the reason I got to do really pretty much what I wanted, wasn't because it was seen as being key to the business, but because it was the very opposite. <laughs> I did something no one else wanted to do, because yeah. science fiction doesn't sell, yep. and nobody buys aliens. <laughs> now, what, once I'd started putting the game together, I, I bear in mind, at the time I was sharing a house with um, John Stallard mm-hmm. and uh, Anthony Epworth, and this was a bit like um, it, it was a shared house, but we also tended to have other people staying with us from work. Mm-hmm. So people like Charlie Elliott might stay over for a, a few weeks while they got themselves together. And mm-hmm. so I think because quite a lot of people did. So it was a little bit of a madhouse. It's been compared to um, the uh, film Animal House. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it was a bit like that, to be honest. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to yeah. be able to look at John now uh, and think would not think Flounder or uh, was Flounder? I can't. What was John Belushi's character's name in that movie? Blue, John Belushi. Oh, yeah. it wasn't Flounder. Flounder was one of was the, the uh, yeah, two younger guys. The younger it? guys. Bluto. 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 That's it. Bluto. <laughs> yeah, John definitely was John Belushi, uh, and I think uh, yes, uh, one of his heroes as well. I think. Yeah. yeah. Not surprised. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it was. A, it was a bit like that. And uh, anyway. Uh, famous for its parties, that house. Uh, and um, we would play the original version of what became Warhammer 40,000, and, and which was never referred to as anything other than Rogue Trader at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd play the original version of Rogue Trader on the floor, usually, because mm-hmm. the table was just full of toy soldiers and crap being painted. Um on the floor of that house, and it would be me, uh, at, as I say, Epp and John, and perhaps a few guys from work, or some friends of John's that were just passing through, one of whom was a chap called Pete Cantor, um, who was just a mate of John's, really, a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, because I was looking through, I was looking through the original books uh, yesterday, because I knew we were going to be talking about it, mm-hmm. and it actually has, in playtesting section, the credits, it actually has Pete Cantor's name, in fact, he's the first there, Pete Cantor. Oh, that's funny. And of course, that's captain cantor of the space marines oh uh, that's awesome that's the original but he was the original captain cantor <laughs> uh and he fantastic. didn't work for us or anything but he was uh, he, you know he took part in those games and um uh, you know we 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 enjoyed playing and i ran them as role-playing skirmishes you know they're skirmish war games but a role with a huge role really they were role-playing mm-hmm. games so i'd be games mastering it and typically a group of space marines would turn up on an alien planet that had suddenly um, you know, a research station had gone quiet and they were investigating. And of course, it had been taken over by um, uh, avian monstrosities from the warp that had eaten everyone's brains, mm-hmm. as was the way. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> and all the models we'd be using would be converted fantasy figures, mostly. Yeah. We Very early on, we did have um, the very first Space Marine model. Um, I think it's called LE2. Uh, yes. And I think Bob Naismith made it. Quite early on, I got some of those and painted them up because I've still got them to this day. But that was the only one we had. There were no others. Those are the ones um, with the blank faceplates that look a lot like some of the new Forge World robots, sort of a hunched... Uh, yeah, he's carrying... hunched over. He's, yeah. it, it looks very much like a space marine, but he's walking along the slot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's got a typical Womble-type helmet. Yes. Uh, but he's, he's got a gun pointing down, and the gun... Just looks like somebody's made, taken a vacuum cleaner and made stuff up, yes. and put a blade on the end. Mm-hmm. As Bob Naismith made that. I'm thinking of another model, but I know exactly which one you're talking about. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, right. Fair in enough. fact, I have one of those. They're gorgeous. 
uh, with the pointy, with they have those little wee legs with the pointy uh, kneecaps. Yeah, it, it's got a slight, it's based on chaos, uh, uh, chaos, uh, chaos armor of the time. Mm-hmm. It's like the chaos um, range for fantasy was selling really well. Mm-hmm. So um, the uh, uh, the idea of what Space Marines should look like was influenced by that. Let's make some chaos warriors in space. Yeah. And, and essentially, that's what they, uh, uh, that's what Bob, uh, Bob Nason did. In fact, again, if you look at that credit page, it does say um, Space Marine models designed by Bob Naismith. And yet there's always endless arguments about who made them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, uh, and there it is. Space Marine original model designs, Bob Naismith. Um, and he did. Yeah, they, all, all the guys had a bit of go at some concepts for Rogue Trader, but uh, Bob, Bob designed that Space Marine. Um, but all the other models would be other things that we just converted. Usually, D- I used a lot of D&D monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Catachan devils that are actually in that book would be things like carrying crawlers. Because yep. we made a lot of that under license at the time. And my, I think my original Inquisitor model is actually a mouth of Sauron from the um, Middle Earth range. Oh, get out. Amazing. Lord of the Rings range. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, which is a fantastic figure, and if you look at it, it just looks like a 40k figure. Yeah. It, it was it was made as the mouth of Sauron. He's holding a scroll in his left hand, and he's got a skull-like face. Um, uh, and uh, and that, that was the keynote for the you know this is what an Inquisitor looks like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a, a lot of things were built out of other other um, other ranges. Um, a lot of my uh, human settlers were actually medieval figures with handguns. The twins had done a. Uh, a small range um, already. Uh, so, you know, it, it was it, it was put together like that. Uh, and um, as we were playing, it, it became really a, a thing. You know, it became a really popular night out at Rick and John and Epps place, mm-hmm. um, playing 40k. And people, because people came in from the broader business because they were staying with us. I mean, we were young lads. I mean, and they were younger than us usually, you know, mm-hmm. early 20s sort of thing. Uh, it, it's, it, kind of, it kind of got in at the ground. So all of a sudden it became popular because it was popular because the staff were playing it. Yeah. It, it wasn't a, a top-down. It was a bottom-up, if I can use that phrase. A yes. ground-up. Yeah. So that's a bit healthier, isn't it? A ground-up. <laughs> a ground up call of movement and and it gradually seeped through and it became obvious that this was going to be a really popular game because everyone was so keen on it everyone was so enthusiastic about it um and people like bob naismith um uh in particular would play in fact bob made a lot of the scenery that's in the original book yeah. for our games so 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 bob brought something to it um uh, and it and he, he, of course, is a figure designer, as well as an artist, actually. He's quite a good artist. Mm. Uh, so so it, it, it acquired it acquired its character that way. Um, and by the time I'd actually finished the text, um, which was about 1980, it, it was the same year it was published, I think, about early 87, I suppose, um, we'd got a little little bit of a way with the uh, uh, the model making but it became it, it was so apparent it was going to be successful that there was suddenly a lot of resources got pushed into it mm-hmm. um, and plastics became a, a possibility and at the time we were sort of exploring plastics we I think we just in 
Hospital recently employed a chap called John Thorthwaite mm-hmm. to look after our plastic division. He used to work for Matchbox and he partly owned a tooling company and a, um, a plastic injection molding company down in Wisbeach. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, that partnership meant that we were looking for projects to do. Uh, 40K was about to come out, uh, Rogue Trade mm-hmm. was about to come out. So, um, as I say, all, uh, and the enthusiasm within the business meant that suddenly from it being a nobody buys science fiction and, and, and so on and so forth, yep. lots of resources were suddenly put into it. But I'd already written it. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, I, I, I think things like what a space marine looks like, um, uh, and to some extent, some of the detailing I wrote on the hoof uh, mm. because because I'd already written the book. Right. Um, uh, but that, that you tend to have to do, you know, as the book's going through production, somebody turns up with a pit. You have to bear in mind all this artwork was commissioned by other people. I mean, I might have put in my original notes, can we have a picture of a space marine fortress exploded like a, you know, an old look and learn uh, <laughs> magazine yeah. or something like that. I, I would have put something like that in. But what I got and what I asked for were two entirely different things, usually. Um, mm-hmm. So you look at something and like um, look at page 167. There's a picture there by Jez Goodwin. And Jez just kind of was inspired to do this picture. Mm-hmm. And it's a picture of a bounty hunter with a kind of scaven creature. Yes. And it's a really nice picture. I see it's a lovely concept and it sort of fits in with the, uh, the, the, the backstory quite well. Mm-hmm. You look at that picture. I hadn't seen that picture before it turned up. So I then wrote the bit of text that goes underneath it. I'd probably have said to Jez, what's going on here, Jez? And he would have said, well, it's a bounty hunter and his little friend. <laughs> um, and, I, and I kind of took that and I, I would have done that bit of text specifically for that picture. Mm-hmm. And that's true of a lot of the things here. You know, the, it, I, I, sti- I would have stitched it together. Yeah. And in some cases, I would have stitched things uh, quite within by altering the text mm-hmm. to make it can fit the picture because uh, I wouldn't have known what any of the pictures were when I wrote the text. Oh, that's um, amazing because those some of the captions were so yeah. good, uh, and yeah, they were one uh, of the things exactly. that hooked me as a kid was that you would look at the, I mean the pictures in this book were revolutionary at the time they were just so unlike other things at, at I mean just the richness. You could fall into almost every one of those pictures. It created the world, but that was just the hook. It, but then as you started to read the words, it came to life and it became, it literally, as I said, it changed my life. The way, I, you know, it just, it was so dense and so rich. It was amazing. But it's, yeah, I it's, think I was just surf, I was just surfing on it, really, just riffing on it, really. Oh, but it, to have it, that, amazing how fast. Yeah. It's actually amazing how fast this was done, and uh, I think not stopping to count, not stopping to think too much, is is one of the things that gives it its character. Mm. Yeah, I'll tell you something else. I'm looking at page fifty six, fifty seven. There's a spread of mutants here, and they're drawn by um, McKenna. uh, Mm -hmm. What's his name? So, so McKenna. Um, Each one of these pictures is based on a photograph of a member of staff. Oh, get out. Oh my yeah, God! Now that you say that, I can actually pick a couple of these. Maybe. Yeah. Now, which ones? Don't tell me which ones you, Rick. Uh, well, I know. I, I don't think I'm on that one. Okay. I, I don't. I don't think I'm any of these. It's page fifty-six, fifty-seven. Yep. 
I, I don't think how many of these. Some of them I sort of recognise, but I can't quite put a name to. Yeah. But if you look at the top row, second one in yep. on the left, mm-hmm. that's Tony Ackland. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, if, if you go onto the next, onto the page fifty-seven, mm-hmm. the one in the middle with the sort of warty eyes, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, I think that's uh, Ali Morrison. That's awesome. Looks like Ali. It does. And then if you go onto the bottom row, page fifty-seven, mm-hmm. the left one with the crab eyes, that's Richard Halliwell. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is John uh, Stollard one of these per chance? No, I don't think no, so. No. They would have, they would almost certainly been studio staff. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, well, I'm glad you, hold on. I'm, I'm going to derail you slightly. Um, since you brought up the mutant picture, um, one of the things that astonished me as a kid, uh, when I flipped open this book, uh, was the staff photo. Um, there is the, and I'm flipping through looking for it now, but there is a picture. It is. Okay. I'm, I'm looking throughout the rest. Yeah. But to have... A photograph like that of all of you was brilliant. Um, yeah. It, Sorry, you're thinking, of the, thinking of the drawing. The, yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah, it's page, it's page two, um, it's 260. Yeah. Yeah, 260. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. What we used to, we, we, fo- we photocopied this and we put it on the wall. And then as people got sacked, we, we blanked them out like, um, <laughs> like a Stalinist kind of purge. Mm-hmm. Trying to think. There's still a few there. Yes, there are. Jervis is still there, at least. Yep. Yeah, uh, Jervis is. Uh, Jez is still there. Yep. Yes, he is. Uh, he's uh, sort of in charge of design now. And Ali Morrison is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that John John Blanche is sort of there. He's kind of yeah. retired. He but he, he's still he's still there. Uh, yeah, that's about it, I think. Yeah. But it, it is, I mean, that photograph, you know, looking at that when I was younger was just, you know, it's like, this is the group that made this. And as I grew up, I, um, you know, and as I read more, I guess, more British centric things, all of a sudden I got the Judge Dredd costume. I got, you know, uh, some of the some of the other references that were in there uh, stylistically. And then, of course, yeah. I met some of you and it made even more. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's Rick. Um, yeah, I, I have to say that there's a lot of 2000 AD. Yes. Um, and I think pe- people who, uh, British people of our generation who remember 2000 AD, particularly that time, will, will have recognized it. But I don't think Americans did. And I, I think that made it even more strange mm-hmm. uh, to an to American audience. Um, but uh, I, I, you have to remember at the time, I, I just finished, I say just, I'd finished doing a, a role-playing game for Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually sat down with um, piles and piles and piles of 2000 AD and I had to read all the 2000 AD Judge Dredd stories. Yeah. Um, but, of course, I had every uh, I had the whole pile there. And um, I was always a great fan of 2000 AD and uh, uh, particularly Pat Mills' stories. And, um, it, you know, there's quite a lot of Nemesis the Warlock Yes. In 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 Row Trader, um, and I think that's fairly apparent. It, it it's not um it's not a sort of a, a direct uh, uh, inspiration. I mean, there's a lot of differences, um, but if you um, if you look at some of the imagery from uh, that that comic strip, mm-hmm. you you see it in, uh, in particularly in later uh, Road Trader and what it became. I yes. think. 
Well, let's let's get to later, Rogue Trader, in a minute, and let's let's try and re- I'm going to try and bring you back a little bit to just prior to the game coming out. It's popular. The company's dumping resources into it. Um, now, something you've said before about aliens. No one buys aliens. Um, one of the things that was so particularly familiar to me and what made me so excited about Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader when I first cracked the book was it was so recognizable. Um, because I also did, I played Star Frontiers, which is why I knew what it was. But the aliens in that game, you know, you had like an amoeba who wore a spacesuit and there was like a dog person. Like those were cool and all, but they never grabbed me as a kid. And yet when I cracked Rogue Trader, there was an orc, there was an elf, and they were, you know, orcs and Eldar, and everything, actually, were they Eldar in this, or is it space elves? But there were dwarves, there were squats, and yeah. so for me, it was very familiar. Um, was the, because you guys had the, the mantra behind closed doors of saying, you know, aliens don't sell, is that why... There's that yeah. Tolkien-esque it, feel to 40K. It is. It, it's that thing where the fact that I, I wrote the game and it wasn't until it was almost finished that it was realized that this was going to become big meant that some of the things I did assume a different kind of, you know, assume we're going to sell 5,000, sell through, and that's it. Right. And never do it again. <laughs> that'll, that'll teach you, Rick. Nobody <laughs> yes. buys aliens. Um, so... Although, um, you know, I was given the green light on the project, there, uh, there were certain things. And there were things which I, I think it was – it would largely have been Brian Ansell who pretty much laid the groundwork. Because um, at the end of the day, if I go and create a game that demands we make thousands of miniatures, they can't do it. So right. you, when you're designing a game, you have to kind of go – you almost have to negotiate in terms of what resources you can have. Mm-hmm. And um, – the deal was we're not going to make any aliens for this game because nobody buys aliens. Mm-hmm. So what we'll do, the original plan, uh, and this is going back to, you know, almost like the right one started writing it. We're not going to have any aliens. We'll have no resources for aliens. So what you have to do is make the maximum use of what we already have, mm-hmm. i.e. D and D monsters and things like that. And people won't be buying aliens but what they'll do is they'll buy uh, they'll be able to buy conversion packs so they can convert their fantasy figures into uh, uh, into um, aliens oh that's fascinating yeah that was the original plan now i am going back to right at the start mm-hmm. and i think that plan fell by the wayside quite quickly but that was the original plan that's why when i started out i said right well we're already playing Warhammer fantasy with mm-hmm. a bit of science fiction in it anyway, so the, it's not a big stretch. Um, so we'll have sp- space orcs, space elves, space dwarves, space goblins. You know. mm-hmm. We'll use those as the basis. Now, I'd actually already taken that idea for my original Rogue Traders spaceship game. In my original spaceship game had the Eldar and had orcs with a K. You know, mm-hmm. it, it had those uh, aliens... It, uh, fantasy races in space idea behind it so it wasn't exactly out of the blue right. um but that's the reason for it and in fact there are one or two things in here where we broke the rules and um and uh, one of them is um, tyranids for example now there there's 
I've made an alien up there. In fact, yeah. it wasn't me that made it up. It was uh, Nick Bibby. Uh, the, uh, just give, this is an example, really, of um, kind of what happened as the game was being developed. Uh, Nick sort of came to me and said, I've got this really great idea for a uh, for an alien. And uh, it's got like six arms. And if mm-hmm. you look at the picture, it's on page 201. I was going to say 201. I'm looking at it now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nick Bibby drew that. Uh, he's a very good artist, Nick. He, he currently works as a um, uh, bronze sculptor. Very good one, too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he had this idea for this creature, and that's the creature. Um, as you can see, its rear legs are kind of splayed out. And the idea was mm-hmm. that as it runs along, its rear legs act as stabilizers. And that was the original Tyranid. And that, uh, I think I came up with the name Tyranid, and I wrote this text to go with it. But the idea of that creature was Nick's. Mm-hmm. And I would have sat down with Nick and said, what's going on, Nick? What do you reckon? Yeah. What does it do? What does it eat? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and that, so that's, that's actually me breaking the rules. And it's interesting that although the concept of a Tyranid, which I wrote here, pretty much stayed stable. Yes, it actually, did. What it looked like. Yeah. But the rest of it, uh, yeah, that, that concept, you know, that model doesn't look anything like a modern Tyranid. Well, um, uh, Rick, that looks like a proto-Hormagon, if I've ever seen one, down to the flesh yeah. borer it's carrying. I mean, that... Yes. Yeah. Well, the idea of having a um, bioweaponry was one of Nick's concepts. Mm-hmm. So, and I've written it up, and it's actually it does talk about it here as having biologically, yeah, biological weapons and ships that are almost yes. like a inside of a creature. So, you know, the concept is there, but um, uh, but that, but it only happened because Nick came up with that model. Mm-hmm. And I think I later on, I think because I. Uh, another thing was we had to make use of whatever we had. You'll notice the next entry on page 202 mm-hmm. is Zotes. Yes. We happen to have these these Zotes for fantasy, which I never liked personally. That was a bit weird. Yep. Um, and we ended up with Zotes with sort of gas masks on, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which just looks kind of peculiar. But I wrote them up as being like a, uh, a tyrannid creature. That's right. You know, one of their slave creatures, just because I had to do rules for everything. Mm-hmm. That was one of the other things. Was the other thing. So, so we, we couldn't have we couldn't have new aliens. Got a bit naughty with my tyrannies, but we had to make the use of whatever we had. Yeah. So hence those. Um, and I think there's plenty of other examples in here. Um, uh, the amble, the, the amble does look a little bit like a bugbear. I'm just or an owlbear. Uh, it, it's a um, umber hulk. Yes. Oh, of course. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The. Uh, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean. We and I was instructed really that anything we made as a monster that could be incorporated in, mm-hmm. we would incorporate it in. Now the problem was because I couldn't literally call them the same thing or draw them the same way, they ended up being sufficiently different that people weren't prepared to use the things they were supposed to be using <laughs> from their collections. Yeah. So the enslavers, which are beholders by any yeah. other name. And I use these a lot. The idea, of, I mean, I kind of change them a bit in the way they work, but essentially, the the, the model I used for enslavers when we were playing our um, original role-playing star games uh, was the D and D Beholder. Yes. But um, of course, when Tony drew it, he had to draw something specific. Um, and I, I think the other the other thing that's rather obvious when you look at it is, um, I think there are um, uh, uh, there are Daleks in here somewhere, and. Um, uh, uh, there is Cybermen. there is a uh, there is a um, 
a space marine that has a Dalek lower half somewhere in this book. Uh, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. Because we, we made them at the time under yeah. license, you see. Oh, that's in Compendium. Uh, but yes, yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it will be. Mm-hmm. It's next to your famous deodorant land speeder. Ah, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Classic. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, the uh, the owl the owl bear, since as you asked, uh, was uh, is the Cthulian cud bear uh, yeah. on page 210. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, it, it's really? one of those things that... Uh, 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 just no, no one quite got it, so it, it ended up being um, we had. I don't know if we ever made one, but um, yeah, the the idea of using your D and D monsters in right, it never quite, it never really uh, caught on. Although you know this vast list of monsters and including vegetable based monsters. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's come from having spent quite a long time developing the same things for role well, I'm a role play. Mm-hmm. So. I have this massive reservoir of, uh, of, of things and ideas to draw upon um, and did. <laughs> I was going to say, like, um, uh, because I'm literally also now holding my Warhammer roleplay book, uh, the creature section of that book and the creature section of Warhammer 40,000 uh, Rogue Trader are spookily similar. Um, yeah, yeah, well, it would be. Um, yep. So, so... In context of it being a sort of semi-role-playing or role-playing skirmish game mm-hmm. uh, with the Games Master, um, the, all these creatures and things were just part of that uh, uh, tradition. And some of them have gone on to become massive best-selling ranges like Tyranids uh, and others, um, mm-hmm. like the Bouncers and Carnivorous Sand Clam, have uh, <laughs> disappeared. disappeared. I mean, it's got to feel weird to you, Rick, that some of those creatures that did die, I mean, died hard so many years ago, are now coming back into vogue. Oh, well, they, well I don't know that. Um, mm. So Zotes are now out again. Okay. They are, they, the Zote is a monster pack for Blackstone Fortress, and... The dreaded Amble is in Blackstone Fortress. It's the new Warhammer quest in space. Um, and they are both attachments for that game. As is... Um, uh, they, yeah, I mean, if you look at a number of things, GW seems to be, for the first time in a long time, and I, I know this has been going on for three or four years, but they, they have been going back and mining the old IP and bringing back some of the quote-unquote fan favorites. I mean, Gene Stealers were always, you know, they were in this book, and they look very different to what they are now, but, I mean, when Space Hulk came out, you got the alien-looking Gene Stealer that we still know and love today. But when you... I mean, Gene Steeler cults were something else, and I believe you said that was a Brian Ansel creation—the idea of the the cult. Yeah. But Gene Steeler cult is now an ar- is now an army, and there's a picture in Rogue Trader um, that is a bunch of generals from different races standing around a table, like a holographic yeah. uh, tank with some Space Marines in the background, and that table. Um, is now a Gene Steeler cult model. Um, it looks exactly like it, except what's on the table is an over is an, a top down view of uh, not is um, Nottingham, the GWHQ. Um, it's a three yep. it's a three D model of that. But looking at that table, the very first thing I looked at, and they said that is straight out of Rogue Trader. 
Um, and of course, it's Gene Sealer Cult, which is also from World Tr- Rogue Trader, but from later in the run. Sorry, Rick, go ahead. Mm. No, no, it's okay. That's, yeah, it's 223, page 223, yeah, that picture. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's got to be weird. And I mean, squats are starting to appear in Necromunda uh, from time to time. So you're starting to see things that that used to exist. I guess they're slipping mainly into specialist games. Um, yeah, 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 it could be. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um uh, because I'm not aware of these things, mm-hmm. I can't say as it does seem weird. Yeah, uh, it uh, it is weird in re- now you mention it, yeah. but I I, I wouldn't have uh, uh, you, you know I've not I don't pay much attention right. to what Games Workshop have been doing for the past uh, well ten years since when I left mm. and arguably the last twenty years. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, you, you know I've certainly not uh, uh, had an awful lot to do with forty um, k. Well, it's kind of gained a life of its own, really. It does. And people, uh, I mean, it's it's commonly talked about. And I recently did an episode of Cast Ice on Battletech. And uh, we were debating, you know, the, 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 the rich lore, which game probably had a richer lore, Battletech or 40K. And I, I think it's safe to say it's probably 40K. Um, but it's amazing how much of that lore comes directly from both Rogue Trader, but more specifically, this book. Um, yeah. So much of what we think of today, if you read through Rogue Trader, you look at it and go, man, that doesn't sound anything like what I'm familiar with, but there are so many things that you look at and they just draw you back. I haven't cracked the spine on Rogue Trader in, in a long time, and in looking back, in researching this, I was astonished at how much w- was in there. Um, it, it's it's astonishing. Uh, anyway, Rick, let's let's dial it in a little bit. And I have a specific question. Um, I was going to ask, and I mentioned to a couple of friends that I was going to talk to you, and almost to um, a man, every single one of them wants to talk about the same thing, and it was something that I also want to know. So please let me ask you the most popular question for this episode. Space Marines. Now, you did talk about sort of how Space Marines came to being, or at least visually drew from Chaos Warrior armor. But the Beaky Mark Six armor um, is is yeah. is iconic to war to Rogue Trader, and is is an integral part of that. Um, now, I know you wrote an entire article in White Dwarf at one point that literally set out Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Three, Mark Four, and it went through the whole lot. But Mark Six is the one that we think of, at least grognards typically think of as what Space Marines look like. Um, although a lot of people probably these days think of Mark Seven or beyond. Um, what? How did? Space Marines A come into being, um, but also B, how did you go from a Chaos Warrior to that? Um, do you do you know? Is that were you you part of that process? I know you did a lot of the the yeah. work. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I mean, I, I might not have been necessarily driving it, but I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, and this would have been probably when I got the text about ready. Um, 
what happened was, I th I think they wanted to start doing drawings and uh, or making models. He was pretty making models really, and they asked me, you know, what what these things look like, and I did some drawings. But to be honest, I'm not an artist, mm -hmm. and I think uh, I think I think what I drew was um, essentially, you know, a futuristic soldier mm -hmm. um, with a um, with a helmet uh, that kind of kind of looked a bit like um, uh, uh, the uh, the helmet from the um, 2000 AD strip Rogue Trooper. Oh, interesting. But okay. the but the Souther helmet, not not Rogue yeah. Trooper's helmet, which looks right. a bit like an American helmet, GI's mm -hmm. helmet. The Souther helmet, which looks a bit like um, a kind of well, it's a bit like a uh, I suppose it could look a bit like a Roman. Mm. Uh, uh, first century AD helmet a little bit, but it's got um, a visor. The whole front is a whole visor, and it turns into a breather mask. Mm -hmm. And I think I drew something very much like that because I thought that was quite a cool image. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of his costume, I think I'd given him basically might have been overalls with um, like a. It might have had a cross breather, you know, like an X shape on the front. Mm -hmm. um, and that model got made, and it actually did get sold. It got put into the into the range of. Um, kind of adventurers or, or just random Imperial Guard figures. You know, we had, we had mm -hmm. a big dump code at one point oh, yeah. where, where a lot of the um, concept models just got sold off. Mm -hmm. And that model did go in there. Uh, and it didn't really work. It just it just didn't look very exciting, um, which just shows you really you need figure designers to <laughs> design <laughs> figures. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I... I remember, and I did similar things with the orcs and the Eldar and whatever, and we did actually make a whole range of uh, concept models, a lot of them which just look like orcs with guns or Eldar mm -hmm. with guns and things like that. Uh, and the figure designers kind of took those, and, and I think it would have been Brian Ansell, because he would have taken an interest by now, mm -hmm. and probably Alan Merritt, who was in charge of the figure designers, who would have gone over some and gone, well, this isn't quite working, can we do this, can we do that? And by an iterative process, an iterative process, mm -hmm. The models evolved to something that'd be more familiar, right. but with Space Marines, we were really stuck. We couldn't quite get it, and I think in the end, I have an idea it was Brian Ansell, or, or, or it might have been just a conversation, but it would have been a a, a conversation between people like Brian and uh, and, uh, and Alan. It might even have been me, but it would be more likely to be by the figure designers, like uh, 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 like probably Bob. Mm -hmm. uh, and the concept was just take a just take a chaos warrior, and what they did is they took a, a, a chaos warrior concept. So the, those shoulder pads—that was what chaos warriors had at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they had things like that, um, and I think that the leg armor even the thing. I think I don't think it was particularly. Uh, you see, the original Space Marine didn't look like a Mark Six. The very original mm -hmm. concept didn't have the didn't have the flares. Right. It had um, some more conventional leg armor like greaves. Um, and similarly, the, the the bits at the elbows, uh, which almost mm -hmm. like a, it's called a pauldron they, yep. in medieval armor terms, they, they had similar things at the knees originally. Um, and the, that, but the hel the helmet was pretty much taken from my concept model, but they put a that big beak on the front like yes. a, bas a medieval bassinet. They fact. did. To, yeah, uh, but to cover up the gas, the gas, it was still supposed to be a rebreather underneath it, but mm -hmm. the bassinet shape. Uh, really gave it a medieval look, so it was trying to give it a uh, 
a, a kind of look of a medieval or a chaos night in space. And then, of course, you just stick that big backpack on it yes. <laughs> and give it a gun. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I think we call it a Mark 6, but I, when I did the original Road Trader book, there was no that – that mocks of armor thing was um, something that came along later. And I think Jez was very keen on doing that. And, and I, what I wanted to do with the mocks of armor was try and explore the history of the Imperium. So the different mocks of the armor reflect periods of history in the creation of the Imperium. Mm -hmm. and, and that was really what I was interested in more than the actual armor. Yeah. yeah so, so you have that initial period when really the chaos, the, the space marines were little more than um, Mad Max style road warriors. Thunder warriors. I think that's, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's essentially what they were. They were, it, and, and that's essentially what the reunification of Earth by the Emperor in that great time of uh, uh, isolation mm -hmm. was. And, and, and in my imagination, there was a whole story there and a whole game, if you mm -hmm. wanted. Um, and that was kind of the, what I liked doing with with, with Road Traders and uh, 40K was opening doors, open doors all the time. Mm -hmm. open a door what happens if we went through that door we won't go through it today what happens if we go through this door we won't yeah. go through it today and I, I did a lot and that mocks of armor was a lot of door opening um yes so it, it might have been yeah a lot of door a lot of open doors and later on the mock seven armor was just jez trying to refine the design this mock six armor you, i mean you, you, at one point you, you were asking about the um the legs in particular, because mm -hmm. that, that, that flare armor is quite distinctive. It is. I think what happened was that they started, when they decided they were going to make plastic space marines, you have to bear in mind the process of making plastic figures yeah. compromises the design. It does. And at the time, we weren't very expert at it. So I suspect a lot of the features of the, plus, of the space marine armor were dictated by the compromise into plastic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and yeah. then, yeah, and, th and then when we make metal versions to go alongside it, we would have aped to the style. Yeah. Um, and then as we got more sophisticated with the plastic and um, a little bit more sophisticated in some ways with the design, and Jez would have refined, because Jez is a great refiner, <laughs> mm -hmm. and Jez would have refined that design and created that skull-like, um, which, to be honest, uh, is less distinctive in many ways. Mm. Yeah. But it's been very, you know, it's a very powerful image. It is. Uh, uh, so, so, but that that was for the future, you know. At the time, this this was just what space marines looked like. And I think that's how it happened. They they just started as one thing, and gradually, by a process of compromise, to to meet the needs of production and to meet the um, uh, uh, particular needs of plastic production, they got turned into something else. And the um, uh, uh, very quickly you. The weapons become uh, one thing, you know, mm -hmm. because the plastic figure dictates that, uh, and and that bolter uh, was was created. I have no idea where who first came up with that, but um, you know, I, I mean, I invented the concept of the bolter, but the bolter was already something. I say invented it. I took the concept of the bolter yeah. and wrote it up. It was already a concept in science fiction games and in science fiction. Uh, background stories yeah. uh it might even been called bolter in place uh, I, th I think Laserburn has bolters in mm -hmm. uh, th that's one of the other things that um people often say they often say that you know Laserburn was the f forefather of 40k it wasn't really w what happened was when um when i actually started this project 
Brian said to me, you have to make sure that every science fiction weapon ever mentioned in any game is included because people won't be buying miniatures to play this game. Foolish <laughs> Priestley, no one buys eight, no one buys science fiction models. Love so it. if they've got models for another game, including things we'd already done with Citadel, mm-hmm. um, they have to be able to recognize the, the name of the weapon. That's why a lot of the weapons in Rogue Trader have mul- multiple names. Yeah. Because I couldn't invent all that many. So, so uh, you know, conversion beam projector is also known as something else. It's sun gun or a displacer cannon or whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, and a bolter is also known as a gyrojet or a blast. blast. You know, mm-hmm. There were a whole bunch of names, I said, that these things were sometimes called. And the reason was because I'd been asked to do that. In fact, I'd been told to do that. Oh, really. that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that but I haven't so been funny. told to do it. I kind of embraced the concept. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I can do, I can do that. It's easy. Um, but that's one of the reasons people say, oh, this is just like laser burn, because I used all the laser burn weapons. Yeah. And Brian had done the same thing. I think it was a sort of a Brian thing, because he'd already done science fiction ranges for other people and been selling ranges of science fiction mm-hmm. uh, as part of As it's Asgard ranges and McEwen miniatures, for example. Um, and the original, um, uh, yeah, is McEwen? Yeah, yeah, there were different american companies that did science fiction which was sold under license by asgard which had specific weapon names um so brian had perhaps already started doing it and he 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 kind of he asked me to do the same thing and i I did um and there's but there's nothing else really i think later on when other people started to add to the mythos and build it they brought their own ideas in Mm -hmm. and sometimes those ideas were in tune with the original book and sometimes they weren't mm. but they were still powerful ideas and if they were powerful ideas and they were the ideas that um, your boss was telling you to do mm-hmm. you did them yes yeah. so, so so you know it wasn't within my gift if it was too if rogue trader had stayed kind of the small role-playing game that was no, that it was intended to be no doubt i would have been the developer for it mm-hmm. but because it became very much key to the business very quickly i couldn't be the developer for it it had to it, it had to answer to a bigger yeah. a, a, a bigger demand and there's no way i could personally do everything that was needed for it yeah in fact interesting i found one of brian's um, original memos tucked in a, an old box the other day mm-hmm. that was about the um in, uh, a, i think it's a um, chapter approved white dwarf feature mm-hmm. that we started doing pretty much as soon as this game was published yep. and he and he's not it's not addressed to me but i obviously got a copy it was addressed to the people who were doing white dwarf and to um, the miniatures managers and he's tearing them off a strip because he's saying there's no way rick can possibly do all this in one go as much as he as much as he you know can do he can't expect him to do this every single month you've got to organize yourselves and get all the people working on it and it's no good waiting until the last minute to do all the drawings and artwork. You'll just end up with a complete mishmash that doesn't match, like you did for the. I think he quoted the Mentor Legion. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm and I'm reading this uh, now and thinking, hmm, yes, well, he wasn't wrong, mm-hmm. but from my point of view, you know, I was just doing what I was being asked to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and soon we had to get other writers on board to do things, particularly if they were ideas that weren't from me yeah. to be honest because um I'll, so something's general truism for for ideas generation and games writing 
it's very hard to get somebody else to write your idea for you. <laughs> and if you do, uh, yeah, good you luck. find they, yeah, you know, what you tend, it's like trying to get an art. And I, and I, I, I tried to do this once and I, I quickly realized why, why it was such a bad idea. You've got this brilliant thing in your head, but you're not an artist. So you go to an artist and you say, oh, I want it to be like this and this and this. And the artist goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. And they come back and they've drawn something completely different. Yeah. Because they can't get inside your head. No. Yeah. So the best you can do is try and explain what the ideas are and see what they can do. Give them mm -hmm. as much freedom as you can to come up with stuff. And I think that's the trick in Rogue Trader and 40K, the early 40K especially, um, that rather than it being dictated by me, Mm -hmm. It was inspired by me, if I can say that. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and what was inspiring me was often other things. <laughs> you know, so the, uh, so they, they would bring their own ideas, but also their own inspirations. Mm. So John Blanche would bring a lot of that sort of late medieval renaissance kind of feel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the things we associate with John, they're more John than they are Rogue Trader. But because they got meshed. Yeah. They became inextricable. And because people are visual, people think in visual terms. They do. Um, the visual imagery is what people associate with Rogue Trader, not necessarily what I wrote. Right. Interesting, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, man, Rick. I have so many questions, uh, places to go next. Um, I... I... You speaking has... You, you've... There's there's a question in the back of my head that I I don't want to know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I know that in writing the description of the armors, um, that uh, you were part of the the process that came up with some of the ideas around what became the Horus Heresy. Um, now, when you look at the original Rogue Trader book, I know that there are a number of Space Marine chapters listed in that book, some of which we know to be founding chapters today, White Scars, Ultramarines, Space Wolves, Dark Angels, et cetera, et cetera. Some which have become, um, you know, uh, successor chapters, Flesh Eaters, Flesh Terrors, uh, Rainbow Warriors, uh, Silver Skulls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the heresy uh, became a thing, and the original Space Marine game, which was epic, um, I guess, fleshed out a lot of the, the history and lore around that. But the chapters changed, and there was yeah. a definitive chapter list. And at some point, the, the history and fluff hard said there, are tw there were 20 founding chapters, but we only know 18 of them. The two that were expunged... Um, I, I'm assuming those were open doors, uh, to use your analogy, yeah. familiar. Um, were there ever any ideas for that? Were you part of the process at that point? Should I not ask this question, given yeah, that this no, is one I, of those I, games yeah, workshop no, I, still I hints have, at? Um, yeah, I, I think I the concept of having, you know, the founding chapters, some of which have been their memory's been damned. It's that thing about a you know Roman emperor mm -hmm. or even a an Egyptian pharaoh. You know they go and they hack off the cartouche, don't they? Mm -hmm. Off all of his monuments to make sure that his memory is gone. There's no, right. and, and that was what inspired that idea. Um, but the yes, it was always reflecting back into that 
kind of uh, uh, the heresy of these days, but that time before the Imperium hardened. Uh, so, so I think the concept was there. Yeah, the, it, it wasn't really... Road Traders is just a list of chapters, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, 11, in fact, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then it uh, cheerfully says there's a thousand. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> yes. that's, that's opening some doors. <laughs> yes, it is. One or two. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the, there's, the, there's a picture of the Space Marine chapters. Now, again, remember, uh, I suspect my list got sent to the artist, but the artist would perhaps have done something else. Uh, no, these are all the original ones, aren't they? Yep. It was it was only in I think it was in a supplement when we started to get some really wacky ones. Yes. And they and they, and you know I didn't have anything to do with those. I, okay. I had to, I had to put text to them after in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But I don't think uh, I think people just it might have been Gary Chalk just turned up with them, and I thought some of them were just a bit in a. See, I, I quite like the, I quite like the, the the, the very brutal names that these guys have got yeah i mind you i said that ultramarines is a gag isn't it but i quite <laughs> yes. I, not it's to so mention good. rainbow warriors yeah uh but uh uh, uh y- y- yeah they're uh, yeah the crimson fist uh, uh symbol is the uh, symbol of the tom robinson band incidentally oh is it uh, that, that <laughs> clenched hilarious. fist yeah it was a symbol of the tom robinson band mm-hmm. um yeah Brilliant. uh yeah but um uh yeah, I, 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 you know, I think the minute you start coming up with things like space sharks, I think, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me let me riff off of that question then. Um, I mean, I know Lehman Russ is in this book uh, wearing uh, an, a, a rebreather over his face because his lungs were damaged, uh, according to the fluff text. Um, and then later on, uh, somewhere... I don't believe it's in this book. It might be in Compendium. We first see uh, Calgar sitting on his little chair um, with his buddies arming him. Um, but the idea of, I mean, the, the don't get me wrong, the, the Space Marine chapter of, or section of this book is one of my favorites, uh, favorite parts of it. But you get really do get that, that idea, that, that whole structure because i mean there's the diagram of the fang in this book as well so some of the parts of what we know as you know fortress monasteries leaders of space marines but not specifically called primarchs um are are here was that was that all something that you were a part of i guess i should riff off of space marines at some point but just curious yeah, um, the names of the, uh, I, can't, I don't know where it is actually, but the names of these founding chapters and the yeah. founding, the, the founding Primarchs and the name Primarch, yeah, I did those. In fact, you can tell I'm, I'm quite good at recognizing my own uh, made up names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I tend to have a certain ways of approaching them, and, some, and I, sometimes I recognize my own gags. Mm hmm. And some of the gags I honestly can't tell you about because they're a little bit unsavory. Oh, but, um, come on, Rick. Uh, come on, drop. Give us some salt. What do you got? What do you got? No, they would be, they might be considered politically incorrect these days. Okay, okay. Uh, but, um, uh, well, I mean, one, for example, is um, uh, I think the, um, I'm trying, trying, trying to think which chapter it was. One of them has the chapter, the, the Primarch is called, is it Perturabo or yeah, Perturabo? Exactly. 
Yeah, um, that was based on, although I think slightly misremembered, from the name that Alistair Crowley, the famous black magician, mm-hmm. had when he was induct- uh, in, uh, inducted into the uh, Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It's, oh. It means I shall endure. Oh, fantastic. Or I endure. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what I was trying to – and the reason I, I, I was trying to do is, is, is make it clear that, into my own mind, if nothing else – the, the space marines are actually a to some extent they're a, 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 a spiritual cult mm. you know to, to some extent they are a religious organization mm-hmm. um, uh, and the emperor's blood does flow in their veins that's right it, uh, so, so it's a uh, they have a relationship to the emperor which is actually deeper than their relationship to the imperium they, they, they should be dangerous. The Imperium should be barely. This is this is my rogue trader head on. Mm-hmm. The Imperium should be frightened of space marines, mm-hmm. not because space marines are um, you know liable to turn to chaos or anything like that. They might, um, mm-hmm. but because they're actually they regard the Imperium as it stands today as a bit of a Johnny Come Lately organization. Yeah, you know they they are they are they are directly responsible responsible and connected to the emperor in a way that the um, uh, the actual lords of terror aren't and mm. arguably the lords of terror and the ministerium and all those organizations that have grown up in 10,000 years are a corruption exactly. of what the emperor was standing for in the same way as in which you look at the catholic church then again I, mm-hmm. it gets slightly politically incorrect and i apologize I, i'm making an analogy not a genuine religious observation mm. but if you look at the catholic church today what relationship does that bear to the life of Jesus Christ yeah. and ministry of Jesus? You know, it's a whole organization that's grown up and a whole um, a degree of um, what do you call it, exegenesis, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, interpretation of both the Bible and writings of other people. Exactly. Have uh, uh, created what is modern Catholicism uh, and the whole concept of purgatory, the whole concept of um, indulgences in the Middle Ages. I'm talking, mm-hmm. You know, all those things. Uh, grown up and just uh, and I would make an anal- a similar analogy in the 40k universe where to the space marines that whole uh, that whole uh, uh, imperial sort of back, uh, back culture mm-hmm. is something slightly offbeat you know it's it's it's, 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 its own thing um, and that that kind of was what was in my head and that's why I gave them them all um, uh, they've all got those primarchs behind them. The primarchs are almost like um, guardian angels, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, they, they, their aspect of, of godhood. Exactly. Uh, if, if you like, whether the yeah. legion and wants again, it or not, <laughs> in some yeah. cases. And again, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk in religious terms about these things because I, I wouldn't like people to, uh, to to think that it's disrespectful. Right. But I I, I tend to think in those terms. <laughs> it's. Um, it's uh, because it's a medieval uh, mindset. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, behind it all. But mm. it's almost, I mean, it, taking that analogy, not the religious aspect of it, but, you know, warrior, religious warrior, knights. I mean, these are almost space knights. If you are going to take, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to continue just that, that train of thought, you have people who are, you know, uh, the Templars, uh, the actual Templars who, you know, yeah. went out and crusaded. And then you have, or the Crusaders, I should say. And then you have, well, you know, And, and in fact, we're, we're banned, uh, and, they, and they, the Templars ended 
are being destroyed by being routed out as heretics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you know, they they were <laughs> they were literally the Horus Heresy in reality. Um, they were perceived as that. Uh, I think mm -hmm. they were set up, in fact, but uh, you know they 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 were um, uh, uh, campaigned against, I think, and, right. uh, and then destroyed. Because they yeah, no so, longer fit the universe that they um, fit the world that they, you know, at one point helped protect and create. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. There were there were some ma uh, massive um, massive political uh, uh, force as well. I believe. I think it's that, that sort of um, those sort of rivalries, and that degree of sophistication is always something I saw as being behind a lot of this stuff. And I, I write about it. I, I sometimes later on did write about it, mm -hmm. but I think other when other people brought stuff in, they didn't bring that kind of that, those elements in. And that's why I can usually recognize what I've done, because I would do a lot of stuff that's referencing and door opening. Mm -hmm. um, and often other, when other people brought stuff in, they would do stuff that was contained and door closing. Mm -hmm. I tried to discourage it, but, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You can't. It's not all your show anymore, sadly. No, um, no, quite. Um, and a lot so, of the things that people yep. are very... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to ask you specifically, I was in a segue to um, the 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 piece of art that uh, I would say haunted me most when I was 12 years old, uh, and that's page 137. Uh, the, Let's have a look. Uh, for, the, for those following at home, it is the emperor on his oh, throne. Oh, yeah, okay. And that was, uh, if that isn't the cover of a metal album, I don't know what is. Um that yeah that's will will reese isn't it yeah um you know he, this this was commissioned out of house so uh I, I, probably john blanche would have commissioned it and quite what influence john had over it, i don't know but all these pictures that are, are in that style mm -hmm. that almost woodcut style yeah. were by will reese and um uh he uh he was only a young young fella and i think he went on to work in the film industry um so he became quite successful but at the time um he uh, he did a number of pieces for this, and I I can't imagine how long they would have taken him because there's so much work in here. Yeah, um, but mean, that just, just appeared out of nowhere. On page one forty three, there's the picture of the Adeptus Mechanicus with their hoods pulled back, and that's almost as horrifying. But to to jump back to the Emperor, I mean, to have the Emperor on the throne, it's almost like nobody's home, and you know, no one's running the asylum on this massive. Uh, organization that's you know basically running humankind in space for me as a kid that was I mean shocking there was nothing else I'd ever seen like that and it was you know the dark you know in the in the 41st millennium there's only war and you know the the grim dark future and it was summed up for me that you just that that there was you know nobody in charge per se yeah, it's it's like an eternal state of sacrifice, isn't it? Like mm. the uh, the emperor is uh, um, almost like a, a machine operating as a machine. His level of consciousness is 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 debatable. Interesting. Uh, I did read the description of the emperor before we um, uh, before we started. Well, mm -hmm. you know, when we agreed we were going to talk, and um, uh, it, it's it, I must say it's all there. You know, it, it, is, it is all there. It is quite it is quite creepy, but it is all there. It is. Um, yeah, I was. So I was quite pleased to. I was quite pleased when I read it because I was, you know, so, you, yes, a long time ago. So we're talking something I wrote, mm -hmm. uh, forty years ago. But you know, nineteen eighty-seven. So um, uh, I, I was 
wondering whether it stood up, but uh, yeah, it does. It, it definitely does. Although it is funny, though, uh, one of the sentences, it is ironic that this creature who uh, whose will extends over a million worlds is now unable to leave the life-giving machinery of his imperial throne. Um, I, I just think it's amazing that you refer to the emperor as this creature. How you know, that is it yeah. <laughs> heretical these days. But yeah, I was reading it and went, wow, that stands out. Um, well, let's 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 jump forward a little bit here, Rick, because um, I think we've gotten we've talked about we're talking about some of my favorite parts. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, l- let's go to the game's release. I mean, clearly it's it's going to be popular. The, the resources are being put into it. You talked about how originally it was going to be fantasy models with um, sort of weapons packs that you could convert. And the, but then it became something more. Um, I mean, clearly it sounds like you guys had an idea that this was going to be a great game. But at what point did it sort of... At what point did it become 40K? I mean, because that's... A, yeah. The... the because I played the game at Rogue Trader with no expansions, no white dwarfs, no nothing, because it was in the United States and Japan at the time, and it was hard for me to get anything else. For right. the first year and a half, I played nothing sure. but the book. And then I right, got okay. my grubby paws on Compendium, and it changed because the models were available in Japan, but the books weren't. And I went back to the States, and I got compendium the red cover book and it gave me space marine army lists and imperial guard army lists and all the army lists that i wanted and that dramatically changed the way i played the game yeah i I think those compendiums were were compendiums of white dwarf articles yes they they were correct yeah so all those things that appeared in white dwarf pretty much since as soon as road trader came out Mm. do you know I, i think road trader turned into 40k if, if i can make the difference between mm. that role-playing game and a war game mm. um pretty much overnight it, almost before it came out it it, it uh, it's one of those things that ha- had i it, this is a factor of it being written before it really <laughs> uh, uh became uh became uh, uh a, a a popular thing or something that was going to be big so uh, I think the realization that we would need army lists for armies or forces mm-hmm. for people to play head-to-head games uh, was recognized right from the beginning. Um, and I think the first supplement was called Adeptus Astartes, the book of the Astronomicon. Mm-hmm. Chapter approved. Chapter approved. I was going to say it's something chapter else. Approved. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, chapter it's, approved. it's like a campaign book. But it's one of the hardest books to acquire. Um, yes, because Brian didn't like it uh, for some reason. I'm not quite sure. I don't think he liked the. I think what happened was it it was it was probably being Brian that recognised we wanted army lists very early on. Well, mm. as soon as it looked as if science fiction might sell, <laughs> wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, it was the where are the army lists for it? Well, there aren't army lists, Brian, because science fiction doesn't sell. So I've created a small level skirmish game, which doesn't have specific models. Oh, you fool priestly. <laughs> uh, I'll have to get someone else to do army lists. Uh, okay. So I think he asked someone else to do army lists. I was probably busy doing something else. Mm. And, and, and I wouldn't have been particularly interested anyway, because I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of created a game, which I thought was a game. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't need army lists. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, and um, so he would probably have briefed someone else to do army listening. I think it was Alan Merritt. Uh, and we stuck that in with my campaign, which mm-hmm. was something I'd written originally to go in the book. So I already had that written. Mm. Uh, and for some reason, Brian really didn't like that book. So much so that we always referred to it as chapter disapproved. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and re- we used to let it be reprinted. Yeah. It's, one, so, uh, it's one of the hardest yeah. things to find. It's something like yeah, $400 well, on eBay to this day. Yeah, not worth it. Somebody ought to scan it. Uh, somebody Stick has, it in fact. Mm-hmm. And I only just read it for the first time maybe three or four years ago. Um, right. And it, you know, it was glorious to see something out of this era and to finally read it because I devoured everything I could since then. But I'd never seen that because yeah. it's the closest thing to Rogue Trader that isn't Rogue Trader, if that makes sense. It is, yeah. And in fact, it includes that, um, uh, as I say, that original um, uh, scenario that I did write to go in, I intended to go mm-hmm. into uh, Rogue Trader. It, it, it might even be the first time the Horus Heresy is mentioned. I believe because, it is, yeah. Yeah, because I did that as a piece of, I used to do short bits of text which were filler text. Mm-hmm. So you do lots of short bits of text, you know, just, you just brainstorm them. And sometimes, you know, if they're in a group of people, you say, hey, we'll get no ideas. And they just throw the ideas at you. So sometimes you pick up ideas from other people, but um, I just did a lot of those. And one of the bits I did was that Horus heresy text, which is just trying to, you know, I said about opening doors. Mm-hmm. Well, Rogue Trader does talk about the great wars at the start of the Imperium and how the Imperium was reunified. Mm-hmm. And the Horus Heresy is like um, a little bit of oh, one step through that open door um, and yet opening more doors mm-hmm. because the time when the Emperor was unified. But then there was that little back, that bit of backsliding, you know, mm-hmm. the chapters that are out there are, uh, reconquering uh the human world and bringing the empire, uh, bringing the Imperium together and yet fall victim to chaos, even though they've been armoured in mind and body against the incursions of chaos, yet that was always going to be a corruption. That's, that's the theme of Rogue Trader is really mm-hmm. about that corruption of the, uh, the psychically emerging humanity. Uh, uh, and, and it just seemed like a natural story to me. And I called it the Horus Heresy because I rather like the sound of it. Yeah. Um, and I think I and invented Horus in that process. And from that bit of colour text, and, and, and it's a parallel of uh, of Satan, uh, the fall of Satan, the right. fall of Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Uh, fairly obviously, if you read it, it yes. talks about a third yes. part of the hosts of uh, the Imperium. You know, it, mm-hmm. I think you know, third part of the hosts of heaven falling in. Exactly. And it, yeah, it, it does parallel that. And I, uh, and I, I think what I had at the back of my head was both the um, fall of Lucifer in terms of the Christian backstory, but also in terms of um, uh, Milton, Paradise Lost. Yes. You know, that, that first book of Paradise Lost, which has that it's almost um, almost genetically engineered into me, that description of the fall of, uh, the fall of Satan mm-hmm. and how he falls through chaos, what Milton calls chaos. He falls through chaos and they all land on the sea of fire in in uh, in hell mm-hmm. uh and i really i just i just riffed on that probably near nearly dinner time there you go <laughs> stick that down
yeah. it was very much like that. You have to remember. You know? Yeah. And it, uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it then got picked up for the um, the epic Space Marine game. Yeah. There's a theme, and I had nothing to do with that. That really was a uh, something that uh, was uh, was I don't know. I have no idea even where the idea for it came from. I mean, the concept of doing a micro game was mm-hmm. always there. It was something which should be uh, there since uh, you know day one for games for, for was it Citadel? When we're we going to do a micro game? When we're we going to do a spaceship game? When we're we going to do a naval game? When we're mm-hmm. going to you know <laughs> that was we, we were all. They were all gamers. That was just just part of it. Um, but uh, a Jervis picked it up. I don't know who wrote the background for the Horus Heresy. It's, it wasn't me, I don't think. I might have contributed to it, but I don't remember doing. Well, Rick, I've pulled open the book and Ooh, right, okay. uh, development, Graham Davis. Cover art, yeah. Jim Burns, and game design, Jervis Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Graham was uh, would have written, uh, uh, probably written the uh, background text for that. Mm-hmm. He was he, he he's a very uh, very good professional um, uh, writer. Graham he he, he would he would uh, take the theme very well. Mm. Um, Graham and I uh, and Nigel Stillman had the singular uh, uh, quality of being archaeology graduates. So all all three of us kind of had that shared sense of deep history okay how deep history works and how deep society works so rick how many times have we talked now it's 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 a lot and you're only gonna you're only gonna way to bury the lead you're an archaeology major yeah that's amazing i didn't know that yeah yeah Yeah, I went to college to do a degree in classics and uh, ancient history, mm-hmm. and um, as, as part of which I, uh, uh, I I did archaeology in my first year, mm-hmm. and I quite enjoyed the archaeology, and uh, uh, in the end uh, I, I switched, so I switched to an archaeology degree, um, which meant uh, uh, I, I I didn't take the final classics courses, um, which is probably a good thing really because my Latin was shocking. <laughs> You know, I sort of stumbled through the dictionary, really. Uh, and my Greek was non-existent, so I, which I'd, I'd have had to have really picked up my Latin. And I don't think I could have done it. I just, I, I'd no, I've really got almost no gift for languages whatsoever. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I did an archaeology degree. Hmm. Nice. Well, Lancaster University. Well, you can see, I mean, clearly, just in the in the confines of this conversation, you can hear you referencing historical organizations, armor, uh, you know, biblical uh, references. I mean, classics. I mean, just the just the sheer number of places where I think that is an, one of the wonderful things about the original Warhammer 40k universe that is you know carries through to today is how much feels familiar. It's such a deep and rich yeah. universe, but without its basis being so rooted in human stories that we are familiar with, I don't think it would have resonated as well as it did. Yeah, it, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think doing a degree in archaeology gives you a very good basis for world building, mm. you know, role-playing context or a gaming context or if or a fictional context for that matter any, yeah. any kind of fiction um but i did a degree in archaeology because i was interested in that kind of stuff i mean i, I uh it, you know it wasn't a it, it didn't it didn't create my interest it mm-hmm. was i was already interested in 
um, ancient societies and history and everything like that. And uh, so, and also to some extent, I was always interested in. Um, I know it sounds weird, but I was always interested in religion and belief mm. as a concept. Although I'm not in any way religious, mm. uh, I'm not. I'm not at all religious. Mm. Uh, I should emphasise that. Mm. Um, but when I was a kid, uh, my mother became a Jehovah's Witness. Um, so as a young child. I got to go to um, Kingdom Hall, mm-hmm. which is where Jehovah's Witnesses go, yep. and 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 sit there whilst the various ceremonies and speeches and things go on. And I, and I remember once being taken to uh, Kingdom Hall by my mother when I can't must be quite small on one of these occasions when the world was due to end. Oh right. wow! So, so so your mother gets you right then, right then, young young Richard. We're going to go to Kingdom Hall and uh, and sit there and wait for the world to end. Okay, well. <laughs> I think wow. I might have been mildly sceptical even as an infant, <laughs> but uh, and and I can remember it to this day. We sat there, and uh, the the person giving the uh, uh, I don't know what it would be, it would be a presentation, speech, mm. or whatever, conducting the ceremony. And we all sat there very quietly until the world didn't end, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and then went home. But uh, it, it kind of left a bit of an impression on me. I, uh, yeah, okay. I, I gotta ask, what's that like? I mean, you, you got to wonder, we being in a, you know, the world's going to end, the world's going to end, the world's going to end. Oh, it didn't end. Okay, I'll see you here next Tuesday. Like, how yeah. does that, how does that work? Well, as a small child, you think, this is all rubbish, isn't it? Yeah. I became an atheist very quickly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, see that. And, and I can only remember being not religious, you know, since I was a child. Mm. I don't think I've ever had any genuine uh, religious belief. But nonetheless, I find it fascinating, and it's a great, and it's one of the driving forces in um, most cultures and civilizations. It is uh, when you've got a unified culture is generally motivated and unified by a common sense of belief. Mm. Um, you, you, don't, you don't get um, it, it, the modern Western society is very peculiar in that respect. And um, and to some extent, uh, it's uh, interesting whether it whether it actually is sustainable on that basis. Um, uh, we shall see. But that's what drives the Imperium. You've yes. got that common sense of common sense of belief. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rick, that is the deepest this conversa- this podcast has ever gone. Thank you for that. That was uh, <laughs> got me. You got me yeah. pondering the universe. Now. Um, well. Yes. Well, you know, I said I, I, I didn't do a classics degree. In fact, um, what I did was an archaeology degree, but we were allowed to do other units. And what the the classics unit I did was on Greek, ancient Greek religion. Mm-hmm. So I actually uh, did quite a bit on um, uh, Greek religion, which includes I mean, it's mostly history of things like the festivals and the processes of um, uh, 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 of celebration. And some of the Bacchic stuff actually worked its way into 40K. So you get things like the Omophagos, which is the eating of raw flesh. And the original Bacchic revels, they would tear somebody apart and eat them. And later on, it became a, um, a goat, you know, some sort of animal. But they would literally tear it apart and eat it. And I, and I kind of incorporated that idea into the Space Marines, from the Space Marines rituals. Yes. Because um, there are even Space Marine chapters named after that. Flesh tears and the flesh eaters. Yeah. And the blood drinkers. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But the spragmos is the tearing apart. Mm-hmm. And the uh, so that would be the ritual tearing apart. And the omophagos is the eating of the raw flesh. Yeah. 
Amazing. Awesome. So there you go. There, oh. was, there was some point in education. After all, it wasn't wasted. <laughs> well, I can't wait to tell my mom, look how much I learned playing Warhammer 40,000 when I was a teenager. Take that, mom. <laughs> all right. Well, so we segued, and you, you did mention that um, Warhammer Rogue Trader took a heavy, uh, I don't want to say a direction, left hand, right hand, doesn't matter, turned hard. Somebody pulled the e-brake, and I guess that would be... Uh, Brian and the, it went into the direction of more of a war game. Um, yeah. Now, ha, did you follow? I mean, I know you were working on other projects, and I know um, that a lot of other people took on the army list creation, for example. But you were still uh, contributing to quite a few articles. I was uh, in going through some of the books and going through some of the old uh, White Dwarf articles. You were still contributing heavily throughout the Rogue Trader era and later. Um, yeah. What uh, what became your role in that? And uh, what, I mean, and I'll save my next question for next. So was yours more of a, a world building? I mean, I know you wrote the cyclone rules for Terminators, and as I said, mentioned before, the the armor marks. And I mean, where were you going? I, I think I was just a games designer. I, I really, the um, I, I think initially I, I had a huge sort of sense of it being my game, not mm. least because it's got my name on it. <laughs> yes, uh, um, and felt that I ought to be the person kind of driving it mm. and i did a lot to do that uh, in those in those white dwarf articles but the problem was it the, the needs of business meant that it probably needed to be driven in a direction that i wasn't terribly always very comfortable with yeah. and um uh it, i couldn't keep up um and in, in essence the 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 work got distributed amongst other people mm -hmm. and um because it was so successful Success tends to attract attention, mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, models appeared. And generally, it, it wouldn't be that I said, "Oh, it, let's be great to have this in the game or that in the game." What would happen would be I'd be sat at my desk, and somebody would plonk um, a model. Usually, one of the White Dwarf staff would plonk a model on my desk and go, "Oh, um, uh, they're, they're, this is the latest uh, model for Space Marines. We need some text for uh, five o'clock." And it'd be about lunchtime. And I'd look at this and go, <laughs> yeah. well, what is it? And they say, oh, it's a, a missile launch of a space marine. It's called a cyclone or Terminator space. It's called cyclone. Mm -hmm. They call it a cyclone. They go, well, what is it? I go, oh, it's, it, fi it fires missiles off the bat here. And I go, yeah, okay. Now, is that it? They go, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> uh, it's like, that's what he does. Yeah. And then I'd write it up. Uh, yeah. I mean, we need it for five o'clock, by the way, because yeah. White Dwarf goes to print. <laughs> and that's go, how those things got done. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, I have to ask then. There is one particular article that has been a fan favorite, and I know over the years has had people. It is a wonderful open door. Uh, and I would like to ask you specifically about it um, because it is from this era. And it is an Index Astarte's, uh White Dwarf article that was reprinted in Compendium. And it was a, it was what, five, six paragraphs of text and right. two color pages of alternate camouflage space marine outfits for new chapters. And it was called The Bab Dab War. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Would you, 
was that one of those situ? I mean, how? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's exactly like the Horus Heresy. It almost was its own thing, and it, in fact, it is. It's a Forge World book. It's it's been expanded unbelievably in recent years. But yes. um, yeah, they've, they've plunged through those doors with some enthusiasm, haven't they? <laughs> yes, um, they have. Yeah, what would have happened there would have been, I think. Uh, you see, so I would just be considered at this point to be uh, uh, you know, a, a writer, games designer. I'd just be doing work as needed. I wouldn't be the I wouldn't be Mister Forty K. Right. There probably was no such thing. I'd imagine because it was so successful, mm. um, it, it would be something where Brian would probably say to Alan Mary, "Oh, we need a range of these. Go and sort it out." And, and it was really driven by the figure design as much as anything else. Um, and I think in the case of those those Space Marine chapters, it would have been. I, I suspect again, Brian would have made. He did put Brian put a lot of work into 40k mm. because he he could see where it was going. You know, he, he could see it was it was successful. I mean, to some extent, he jumped on board a uh, 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 the bandwagon, mm -hmm. but he also kind of directed the bandwagon. The battle wagon, one might say. Sorry. Yep. Exactly. Uh, it was. And he uh, he would probably have asked for that to be that to be done because you know he's just expanding out the. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing here because I don't really know. Yeah. But from my point of view, what happened was I was presented with some artwork for Space Marine chapters, and I think they had names with them. I think Gary did. Gary Chalk do the artwork for those. I should say on it. Uh, hold on, let me go back. I don't know. I'm having, uh, yeah, okay. I'm having trouble actually finding the page again, Rick. Sorry about that. Uh, um, I closed the book the second we... Oh, here we go. Cause I, it's um, just that I've got this vague... Remember, we are talking 30 years ago or more. Yeah, no. Uh, I, um, it doesn't actually say who did the art. Okay. Uh, I'm, oh, yeah, no, Gary Chalk. It's in the corner. Yeah, sure okay. Yeah, I know where we are. Yeah, Gary Chalk did those, and he pretty much made them up or was directed to make mm -hmm. to make things along those lines. So when they hit me... I look at these and I go, oh, what's this got to do with 40K? Or what's mm -hmm. this got to do with Road Trader? I don't, you know, and go, oh, what's this, this, this? Okay. And I would have made up that Badab story to knit everything together. So, yeah. you know, the, it, that, generally that's a lot of Road Trader and 40K. And he, he, a lot of stuff in the early days was joining dots mm -hmm. and, and making something out of a tapestry of material that you had uh, and making it seem as if it was all, all whole and coherent and well thought out. <laughs> Whereas in fact, it was completely anarchic. <laughs> well, you uh, fooled us, Rick. You did a really good, good job. Objective achieved. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate. Um, uh, Rick, uh, we've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes now, and uh, I have, I have only scratched the surface of my questions, but I think um, I think we've we've touched on a lot of the big points. Um, are do you are there any historical uh, anecdotes or anything that that we've missed in your recollections of the time? I know you put a lot of thought into and uh, looking back at your notes and before coming on today. Is there anything that that you you think that people might want to hear that maybe they haven't uh or you know maybe clear something up or share a story an embarrassing story about john stoller it's always good but you know um 
Did I say that out loud? I would never do that. Yes. Oh, well, there was that time. <laughs> yes. Have I told you about the time that I played uh, I played John Stollard in 40K? And he said, I don't do no. that sort of thing. Oh, yes. I, I will share one quick story. Uh, sorry, fans. Um, so I worked for John in sales. Uh, and uh, I, they, I don't know how I bullied him into it. Uh, given that he was the CEO of Games Workshop US at that point. Um, oh, I know. Uh, our boss left the company. Uh, I actually went to work in retail. And so I had no direct sales uh, manager during the Christmas right. season, which was a big deal at that point. And so I reported directly to, to John because he wanted to make sure that our team, which was a, a, you know, a, a big money earner, didn't all of a sudden die because morale went out the window. And so he took control with, you know, like John does. Um, and it was terrifying for me as a young man. It was my first job out of university. And um, I made John a lot of money. And um, John would pat me on the head affectionately like Santa Claus and waddle off, you know, do his thing. And John Matthews would come by and kick me in the bottom of the chair and tell me to make more money, usually with a lot more <laughs> expletives attached. Um, but one day um, I said, John... I would like to play you in Warhammer 40,000 and he's cuz that's my game and he said I don't do that. I, you know, we can play these other games and I including um his black powder rules, uh Warhammer black powder and I said, "Nope, uh, we're going to play 40k." And somehow he agreed to it and um he borrowed another salesman's uh Space Marine army, uh, Imperial Fists, and I played my Arbites army and he had to put up with me in, in his best humor, and I think this tells you a lot about, and this is for the listener, uh, me as a human being uh, back in the day, I may have, because I was playing Arbites, done a lot of bad impressions of Sylvester Stallone saying I am the law um, throughout that game. Uh, and I think by the end, he had to politely leave and have the someone else put the army away. But uh, he always did say nice things to me after that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I love John. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, did that yeah, no, Did that anecdote I, give you anything to think about? I, ironic, isn't it, that uh, the uh, the sales director of um, uh, Games Workshop uh, uh, had no real interest in science fiction or fantasy? <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> it's a bit. It's a bit like the uh, the Perry twins. Yes. Uh, who have actually no interest in fantasy or science fiction, managed to work for Games Workshop for about 30, 40 years, and uh, were in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, they they sort of were, uh, had a like, they sort of sort of liked Lord of the Rings, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, they've had that kind of uh, that thing going. But yeah, um, yeah. Mm. even there, I mean, they, they, I mean, they've they've kept doing stuff for Peter Jackson. But I think most, all things they've kept doing are all historical things to do yeah. with World War One. Mm -hmm. uh, they make um, they make the um, uh, the pilot figures for the Wingnuts range of plastic World War One airplanes. Which are oh, totally owned by Peter Jackson. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, mm. Learn something new every day. Yeah, nice. you do. Well, let's, yeah, no, uh, let's no, shift I, back I, to. Yep, go ahead. I was going to say no. I th I think that's pretty much uh, covered. Uh, I'm sure. I, I bet there's stuff which uh, yeah will occur to both of us uh, as soon as we uh, <laughs> five seconds uh, from we now. stop talking. But <laughs> as usual, yeah. send a couple messages after we finish recording. God, I forgot. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, Rick, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, walking down memory lane with you. Uh, because, I mean, as I've said in, in many uh, a Cast Dice and Warlord Cast introduction, um, the, I mean, Warhammer 40,000 really did, you know, significantly change, change the way I look at gaming, changed um, my interests in the world, and has largely ended up, you know, responsible for me being where I am now. Because um, I would have never worked for Games Workshop if I hadn't been playing Warhammer 40,000 in a grand tournament and been hired by staff pretty much at the bar afterward. Um, <laughs> funny story. Um, but, you know, it. I am one of a, a countless legion, a nameless legion, a faceless legion of people who have played this game. Um, I like, you know, I'd like to think that I'm some sort of uh, original snowflake out there, um, political connotations of that aside, um, that, you know, my, my story is, a, is an original one. It's a different one. But so many people have, uh, in the gaming industry, uh, either people who create their own games, people who create their own models, game companies have, have been largely trained by former games or are largely X Games Workshop staff, but all of that comes down to Games Workshop success is largely come down to 40k existing in the first place, um, and Rogue Trader is the origins of that, and that comes back to you. You have a hell of a legacy, Mr. Priestley. Um, so, uh, a giant hats off to you, sir. And I know this is making you feel very uncomfortable as this is not something you like talking about. <laughs> However, you lucky I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, right, Rick, you there? Um, and gone. Um, it, I guess we've talked a little bit about that, but have you considered the implication, the larger global implications of your you're the beast you created. You are the original gaming Frankenstein. Well, maybe not the original, but you are one of the largest of all time. You are Dr. Frankenstein, and 40K yes, is sure. keeps going and going well past yes. your creation date. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. It's the, it's kind of like the seed, isn't it? But uh, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have uh, it wouldn't have been so successful had it not been for all those illustrators and model makers and everyone else who's uh, gone towards making. Uh, making the whole thing uh what it is um but uh, yeah yeah I, I do consider that uh, it's uh, been a fairly major influence and i think one of the things i've always been very proud of is the fact that um you know so many people have um not just played and enjoyed but actually made a living out of uh out of uh, uh, what effectively is 40k mm -hmm. uh you know we've for many years put um uh, food on people's tables and sent people's kids to school mm -hmm. um, you know i mean not not just working the studio but in the factories and warehouse and everything so yeah i think what games workshop is today is, uh, does as you say owes a lot to um uh, to 40k um i tend to think there's a little, there's actually a little bit of text somewhere oh, yeah it's on page 143 mm -hmm. yeah um, you know, i'll just leave you with page 143 the text mm-hmm and there you go. You look at the bottom. I think I was anticipating this very thing. Uh, sorry, I'm still 147, 143. A man may die yet still endure it if his work enters the greater work. Time is carried upon a current 
incepted by forgotten deeds. Events of a great moment are, but the culmination of a single carefully placed thought. As all men must thank progenitors obscured by the past, we must endure to the present that those who come after may continue the greater work. Fantastic. Yep, there you go. Yep. <laughs> Wise words, Rick. Wise words. And you would have written that, as you said. Yeah, I've never written that. Oof. Well, on, on behalf of uh, myself and uh, countless others who are hopefully listening to this today, uh, I would like to say thank you for your part in uh, making sure that this happened and being um, Bullock stubborn enough just that it did happen in the first place. Uh, you have literally changed the face of the gaming industry. And uh, I, for one, have gotten decades of joy out of the game that you have created. Um, and as I said, without its ripples going off into the ether, Lord knows what we'd have in the gaming industry today. So thank you. You're very welcome. All right. On that note, uh, I think I'm going to stop making Rick feel awkward and uh, we will move on. <laughs> Rick, thank you so much for coming on today. It is it is always a pleasure uh, to have you on and just to talk shop. And uh, this has just been one of one of my favorite podcasts ever to record. Uh, this episode is has been pure joy for me. So thank you for making the time and for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and experiences. That's all right. It's, it's a pleasure. And uh, it's very kind of you to put up with me blathering on for uh, nearly two hours. Rick, I, can I think I might have to go and have, yeah. Yeah, I might have to go and have a cup of tea now. <laughs> I, I am going to join you for that cup of tea because I have one in the other room that I'm sure is ice cold at this point. Yeah, yeah. In my, microwave it. It'll be fine. Exactly. Oh, all right. Well, Cheers then, Brad. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. I'm sure that a couple of you listening today, this will be your first ever uh, episode of Cast Ice. Uh, thank you for putting up with my fanboyish uh, worship of the, the one and only Rick Priestley in <laughs> Rogue Trader. Um, but yes, uh, Cast Ice is a podcast that explores the greater world of gaming, uh, I don't usually gush and blush like this, but it is uh, it is a subject close to my heart. Um, please join us again at some other point or check out our back catalog. There's a lot of episodes about a lot of games, and I've had some pretty spectacular guests in the past um, that have a you know have have had a lot of wonderful things to say. So please check us out. Um, and we are just developing a YouTube channel as well. There are some uh, interesting YouTube videos there about how you can. Portray G.I. Joe, uh, Star Wars, and other wonderful games like Mask uh, and other nostalgic favorites uh, on the tabletop. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, if you are looking for us and you'd like to give us feedback for future episodes, uh, please go to Facebook and search up Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, uh, and message the page. There is only one person who uh, does this, and that is me. My name is Brad. Hi. And if you message that page, you are guaranteed a response by yours truly. Uh, but as my good friend Casey always says, there is only one way to end this show, and that is when you are playing the games that we know and love. I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you have fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.
And the terrorists spend that 